Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's educational video series. Uh, we're very excited to have an absolute data star with us today, uh, Jeremy Bach, who is one of the smarter data minds I've come across. My whole life is dedicated to data and the pursuit of data. And you know, it's hard for me to learn from others. I, I always say it, it's, it comes across uh, rather arrogantly, but Jeremy's someone who's going to have a wealth of information for us today. We, we are really uh, very lucky and in store for some great stuff. So let's get into Jeremy. He's a senior vice president of alternative data at Essential. Uh, Essential is a public company, 2,000 plus people, uh, one of the data uh, leaders. Um, so uh, Essential's you know, going to apply to mutual funds and hedge funds. Uh, you know, the team has expertise in pricing. Uh, you know, really type, any type of data you could imagine. Uh, we're going to get into the exciting uh, data offerings that Essential has. And prior to that, Jeremy was the alternative data lead and founder at Bloomberg and, uh, you know, really just developed a reputation for being on the forefront of alternative data knowledge. There are a few people, uh, like, you know, Bill Dag and Michael Recci, who are just uh, super brilliant, and I try to listen to everything they have to say. And uh, Jeremy, we're very pleased to have him with us today. Here is uh, another of them. Uh, former investment banker at City and J.P. Morgan, his expertise runs deep. So, Jeremy, thank you very much. Alex, super delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's cut right to the chase. What is the most exciting trend you're seeing in alternative data right now? I think alternative data has never been more important. Um, foundationally, pre-COVID, post-COVID, what we're seeing really is active management's in secular decline. People's faith in ETFs, indices, what the government's going to do, putting their money into pension funds, 401ks, all the discretionary savings with no interest. It's all a for forcing function into risk assets, but picking assets is very challenging. So I think when you see the government turning on the three trillion money printer, you're going to see a huge distortion in asset prices. Um, right now, company fundamentals and securities are incredibly mispriced and all of it is a massive boon for alter alternative data generally and then new workflow tools specifically. I think the entire, I wouldn't call it a masquerade, but the idea that a fundamental manager can open up a Bloomberg terminal, put some data into a spreadsheet and decide what a company looks like in the next one year, three years, five year event horizon is incredibly challenging. Um, you know, the weapons of choice, a terminal, a spreadsheet, equity research, chat with management, that was all a very kind of walled institutional garden that ensured a lot of information asymmetry. Ivy League trained fund managers was sort of the order of the day. You look at the buttonwood tree from 100 years ago or so where people were trading securities under a tree, which eventually became the Wall Street New York Stock Exchange. All of that um, heretofore is now being taken over by machines. Um, as you mentioned, I love data for a lot of different reasons. I'm now running a data, a data practice at a very interesting consumer and retail analytics company. Um, but I would tell you that all, all of the green shoots here for us really are the systems are changing, processes are changing, information's everything, forecasts are even harder and harder as we run into strange volatilities and edge cases like the pandemic we just saw. Um, you've got guys like uh, John Paulson, you know, incredibly brilliant manager, uh, he turned $2 million in 1994 into a $30 trillion fund. He even made $20 billion on that famous big short bed in 2008. He's now decided to be a family office as of this week. Now, granted, he has $4 billion, uh, an incredibly huge Hall of Famer. But he's even saying, look, the headaches around 
disclosures, investment restrictions, short-termism. It's all a very formidable barrier to doing well. And then now you've got activism, ESG, the rise of the public square, particularly social media, Twitter, accountability is tasking managers much more quickly. I think even for agitators and uh, activist management, all of that's happening in real time. You know, if you say something wrong, you're the villain uh, on Twitter immediately. So I think what, what really fascinates me about alternative data, aside from the fact that it's almost a two billion industry already, is the broadness and the depth of data you can collect. The data engineering, the sorting, the linking, all of the work that needs to be done into forecasting. It's art, it's science. Uh, you need teams, you need portfolio managers, data whizzes, you need patience. You need to know what questions to ask. And frankly, the supportive management teams and active management are already spending millions on tech and data and infrastructure just to try to hit those long-term horizons on returns. So the short answer is data is needed more than ever, and it's very hard to forecast anything. Nobody knows is always the answer. And risk assets are doing well. You know, as, as, as we have money printing happening, um, you, do, you definitely have dislocations. The only way to understand that is now casting and forecasting with all data. And in principle, you know, my day-to-day -day job is, is, is a labor of love. I mean, I literally love what I do. It's the confluence of understanding capital markets, fundamental management, understanding how companies work, and then understanding how data and tech can be used to supply information to people making these investment decisions. So um, long story short, just love what I do and data is king and particularly new sources of data, not from companies are, are on the rise. And it's, it's fun to be part of a rising, rising uh, business. It, it definitely is. It's no fun to work for the, uh, the train uh, industry in the 1970s. You know, you want to be, <laughs> uh, you want to be where, where it's going in the future and whether it's old school value or, you know, uh, you know, cutting edge funds like, you know, 0.72, you know, the, the move towards alt data is just absolutely insane. And, and Jeremy, you were kind enough to give a, a guest lecture to my students and they absolutely uh, adored uh, your talk, by the way. I've gotten so much positive feedback. Thank you for that. But one of the points that really stood out to my students was how specific your alternative, da alternative data is getting. And, you know, where is it going? How, how, how absolutely specific are we going to be in one to five years? The level of rigor and precision expected of a manager now is going to be heightened and incredible. So if you think about the frequencies, you have high-speed trading that was looking at equity prices and volumes and flows, which is now you know, microseconds. I think the ability to process equity prices and securities prices is now down as fast as a, a computer processor. What hasn't caught up is fundamentals. So whether it's one day, one month, one year hold periods, you do need data in real time. So for example, our business is crawling websites, we're doing surveys, and we're doing that in near real time. And we're aggregating that and supplying it to uh, our investors on a daily basis. Having said that, and any business should know at the touch of its fingertips as they run the business what's happening on kind of an hourly basis. There's no reason why you can't have that. Now, some platforms, uh, particularly in China, even post gross merchandise value of every product they're selling. Um, you know, for, for, for better reasons and for worse, consumer goods, you need to know about scarcity. You need to know about availability. You don't quite have that on Amazon yet, but it's better to know instead of just saying, is it in stock or out of stock? It's nice to know that there is some scarcity value to that. And I yep. think as we saw global supply chains creaking, uh, particularly through this pandemic on basic products, um, it'd be nice to know how many, how many paper towels are available at a certain store. And there's no reason why you can't have much more dynamic pricing 
most pricing modules aren't set like airlines yet um, to buy basic goods and services. Maybe it's diapers on Amazon. Right now there's some fluctuation, but it isn't like a, an hourly or a minutely fluctuation. There's no reason why we won't see the rise of incredibly dynamic pricing. And I won't talk too much about blockchain or Bitcoin, but I certainly think that the backbone of the internet was the great starting point for sharing information. The backbone soon for mechanical processing of payments will probably flow to a blockchain that might be a year from now, might be 10 years from now, might be 20 years from now. No. But dynamic pricing, a fixed ledger, immutability, all those things really matter. Um, so particularly for my business, you know, understanding the pricing of every single consumer goods sold in the US and UK and Europe and Asia, that's what we do. And that's what people rely on us for. So understanding the market share, the rankings, the dynamics, the new product introductions, availability before COVID, super interesting. Uh, in a post COVID world, I think understanding scarcity and demand on products, whether it's groceries, it's bread, it's staples, particularly uh, masks and other sort of very sensitive items. It's mm -hmm. never been more important. So I would say the speed and certainty of data and the processing of data uh, are not just advantaged by Moore's law. It's not just computing power. It's data availability and vendors like ourselves uh, stepping into that void. Well, I guess two part question then. What is there alt data that you would recommend for managers, researchers, academics uh, to stay away from uh, slash, you know, is there an area that you like that you'd want to kind of, you know, veer towards? You know, I think highly processed data sets that try to come up with the answer or their overly indexed can be very succumb to recency bias and all kinds of biases, survivorship bias, um, and the, frankly, the bias of whoever programmed them. I, I've never been a huge fan of highly processed data. What I really like is source of truth data. So anything that has to be very nicely shaped that has a good sample size whether it's um, you know, location data, how many people walked into a very precise McDonald's yesterday, as long as you have the right orchestration of phones, as long as you have the majority, let's say Google Android operating system, and you, you have comfort that the sample isn't biased, I like those that are sort of the safe source of truth. Anything where there's overfitting or shaping of algorithms to produce data, or is like an answer, it's almost like a, an ETF product or something that's gone too far. So I guess I would say, some of the sentiment data sets and others that are interpreting behaviors, emotion, they can be very interesting, but they can be very manufactured. So point of truth where there's no shaping of the data other than collecting it, structuring it and selling it or distributing it. Those are the ones that I like. And I do have pretty high opinions of certain data sets and others that, you know, I think are a little bit fabricated or, or sometimes, you know, they're missing data without the reliability of something where it's repeatable um, you know, surveys that are moving around or changing. Quants can't use those. You know, certainly anybody that with a stats background can't use those. So there's kind of a checklist of 10, 12 items that I looked through when I was at Bloomberg that I use as my guidepost that helped me have comfort that, you know, moving to Essential was a good one for me. Um, and obviously we have a, a great and deep client base, both in consumer and retail, but also in finance. So that also gave me comfort that when renewal rates are 100%, you know that you're in somebody's process. You know you're a part of their workflow. It's not a nice to have. And we, and we saw that through COVID. So um, definitely have high opinions of some. And I think there'll be a big washout as well. I mean, you can't have hundreds of new data companies survive. Um, there, there's oh, not necessarily a monopoly on these things. People like having two or three points of truth to compare to each other. But you don't need eight people processing location data. Alternative data very much feels like the auto industry in the 1910s, 1920s where everybody and their brother, you know, wants to get into it. 
And it's just, there, there's so much capital flowing towards it. There's so much interest in it. And you also highlight another thing that comes to close to my heart, which is ETFs. So many ETFs, in my opinion, were designed to fail. I, I don't mean that they built them to fail, but the people who constructed them had knowledge that in so many market environments, those products would fail. But in the current market environment, they would sell and make revenue. And so there's kind of a, you know, there's a moral low ground, I think, that, you know, went into a lot of ETFs that were offered. So, you know, that's definitely a, you know, a, a personal point that I get, you know, uh, a little like upset about. Uh, and I must also say, you know, Bloomberg uh, was one of the most beautiful offices I ever saw. Uh, your building on 59th was uh, absolutely amazing. So essential that you guys are in London now. Yeah, so Essential's a really interesting company. It's actually been around for more yeah, than tell 100 us, tell years. Us about it. Yeah, then, so in, very, in various economies. But first let's, let's first first let's talk Essential, then let's talk about what's going on with this economy because there's definitely, you know, we've wrote, written about it at Rebellion. There's a divergence in, you know, tail to economies, a divergence in what's going on. I want your take on it. And first uh, I want to hear about Essential because I wouldn't this is, you know, an awesome company. I've heard a lot of great things about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I, I kind of found it by happy accident. One of my data hunters uh, at Bloomberg brought it to my attention. And uh, as soon as I started to understand the dynamics of consumer and retail, what I realized was the acceleration of digital economy moving online is incredibly hard for investors to understand. And anytime I see a dislocation, that's one that I want to fill. So Essential has been around for over 100 years in various forms and names, EMAP, Retail Week, and others. Um, it, is, it is a business that uh, supports all of the consumer product journey. So understanding the design of the right products, understanding what consumers need, helping align those interests uh, and requirements into products, launching the products, and then pricing products and monitoring those products. So we're a family of businesses owned by one parent. Um, about 2,000 employees were in the FTSE 250. Some of our more interesting cutting-edge businesses are growing super, super well. Um, we have a business called Flywheel in Baltimore that essentially is a plug-in for a company's planning environment, uh, let's say a Procter & Gamble, to, to link directly into Walmart, into Amazon, and to be able to understand in real time their market share, their price, their ranking, their promotions, how everything's flowing. So those are some of our more popular businesses. Uh, we're in about 20 or so locations. I happen to, when I used to go to the office, uh, sit uh, with WGSN in Times Square. WGSN is really about taste making and preferences in apparel and beauty and those types of brands. Um, and that's actually where the formation of some of our more popular financial services businesses lie. So um, our most popular data set that's been very well adopted by hedge funds and a few of the big bulge brackets is called InStock. What InStock does is it looks at a few hundred retailers and helps understand on a daily basis price, product, promotion, availability. So let's say, for example, we did a case study recently on American Eagle. No. American Eagle, as you have store closures for those few months, how much of that uh, inventory moves online and moves on to wholesalers? So you could see in our data deep, deep discounting, unlike we've ever seen before, as they have to sort of flush a lot of the inventory, as these are all seasonal and cyclical businesses, you can understand if you look at the discount dynamics, what gross margins are going to look like. And gross margins, as you can imagine, get shredded um, as soon as you see inventory pileups, and then they have to be discounted appropriately and shared with a certain amount of wholesalers appropriately. But it, it brings here to fore your question of, what does this macro micro look like? Are there really two economies? And I can definitely tell you that as we look at our data, 
all, all of our investors, as you, as you said to me previously, a lot of things fall out of favor. Macro, as it's been in favor the last few months, is super important to consumer. The, the pull through of supply and demand based on how much money's in somebody's wallet is critical. How many people are unemployed? Are they getting UBI? What's gonna happen with the consumer? Are we gonna have VAT taxes? What's a regressive tax? What's a progressive tax? We could talk about this stuff for hours, but I would definitely tell you that the major driving questions for like an Aber Abercrombie and Fitch or an American Eagle is, are people gonna go back to campus? Are they buying jeans? Are they buying t-shirts? What are people buying? Um, so that macro question is a big one. And then the micro question of what's actually happening on a daily basis um, is critically important too. So if you look at Van Heusen or a Hugo Boss or you know, a suit supply, which is a private company, are people wearing suits? Are they ever gonna wear suits again? Are they wearing a suit and tie above the keyboard and then not wearing slacks below the keyboard? You need to understand all the macro and micro put together to have any hope to trade these companies. And then the piece that I like about this, that's event detection, that's even more critical, is you can actually have a huge pop for a reason you don't expect at all, right? Like Gap announced last week that Yeezy is going to be working on some new product lines for them. Stock went up 42%. So having my pricing data wouldn't have necessarily helped you anticipate that. So in, in terms of the mosaic, you need event detection, you need Twitter data, you need sentiment data, you need to understand 18 different pieces of these companies to understand how they're gonna trade or you're gonna get whipsawed. Um, and that has nothing to do with fundamentals or valuation, it's really just about perception. Um, you know, I, I had a, a boss when I was an investment banker that always told me the same thing. He's like, no matter what we tell our clients, at the end of the day, all that matters is if there's more buyers and sellers of their stock. They can have the right products. They can have the right uh, competitive market share. But you know what? At the end of the day, every time I'm advising somebody, I always think if we're going to do an M&A deal, an acquisition, are people going to be more excited about their stock and buy it more? Sure, it's the fundamentals and sure, it's valuation, but buyers and sellers of these stocks, that's, that's really all that matters. So if you look at a gap last week, pre-announcement, um, you know, how many people were buying gap? Uh, a lot of people were probably waiting uh, for their paychecks to come in or their unemployment to come in before they bought some of these more discounted clothiers. Um, so when you, when you detect softness um, in the discounting um, and when you look at on-store, you know, in-store closures, th this is the real economy. So I guess when you look at both, I would say anybody that has real assets, um, you know, we, we, we've got an apartment, we're going to buy a home. I like collectibles. I like Bitcoin. We've got ETFs. We've got all kinds of different things. I don't care about inflation at all because I'm fairly hedged. I don't sit in cash, but somebody that's, trying to do some savings and be prepared for a rainy day. They care about inflation very much. They care very much about the real economy. And I can tell you that the disconnect between the, the haves and the have nots obviously has, has come to a powder keg. And it's, yeah. it's a very tough political time right here as we wait to see what happens with the November, November conversation. But uh, the macro and micro are, are definitely critical at this stage. So this, this leads us to the conclusion of our talk. You know, you had a, a gigantic job at Bloomberg. Um, I've got to ask, what did you learn from your time there? You know, I think, I think the most interesting components of what I learned there are, um, let, let me start from the beginning, I guess. Bloomberg is the Goldman Sachs of data, right? I mean, they're the most successful fintech platform in the world. It was super exciting to be there. Um, employees there, most of them are, are quote unquote lifers. They like it so much, they never leave. Um, yeah. if for a guy like me to come in, um, having run a few startups, having been a banker, my last startup was floundering. And as I was thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life, I'd had an introduction to alt data by being the chief revenue officer at Estimize five years ago. 
I realize that the influence that I can have in this industry would be a lot bigger if I have a megaphone at Bloomberg. I'm a guy that likes to read a lot, think a lot. I've got diversion interests, but the best way to learn bottoms up is to go to the biggest data platform there is. And I was delighted to be hired, um, delighted that they let me do the alt data platform. What we did was integrate a bunch of new partnerships into the data feeds business on enterprise side. And, uh, you know, look, I loved it. I could call any senior person at a fund or a bank, talk about the new content roadmaps, what we're doing, um, getting a pulse on the workflow, how it's changing um, as they add people. Are they quants? Are they, Alex, are they your students? Who are the type of people that are building the new Wall Street? I got to see it up close um, and I, it, was, it was fantastic for me. Um, the, the challenge I see, of course, is as fees compress, every market participant's looking for an edge. You know, eventually there'll be direct listings. Eventually there'll be a lot more digital. How many brokers do you need involved in every trade? How much is the information asymmetry closing? What's the future? Um, so it, when, when you talk about futurism, I do like uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain. I do like quantum computing. I do like reading about all the new stuff. But even bottoms up, how is content flowing? I knew that that experience at Bloomberg was going to be great for me. And I, and I continue to have even more questions about what is the future. Every market participant's looking for edge. Amazon and Microsoft have lots of interesting assets. You've got trillion dollar companies now. Why don't they want to get into the financial data vertical? And if they do, what businesses do you need to acquire? The monopoly board is there. You've got five major financial data companies. You've got a lot of smaller companies. And, and in that time, up, yeah, go ahead. Interesting topic. Apple acquiring Bloomberg has been a rumor that I have heard before. That would be interesting. Uh, or maybe even uh, you can have Google uh, acquire Bloomberg as well. Uh, you know, so, you know, especially, you know, the mayor is getting older, so, you know, we'll see how that goes. Well, you know, I've got a lot of strong opinions about this, and I would tell you that Amazon and Microsoft, um, in my mind, I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not say. I don't have oh. any privileged information, but I can tell you Amazon and Microsoft would make a ton of, tens, ton of sense. They're in the workflows of a lot of the hedge funds and, and the business. Um, they have a lot of computing power. Any one of those makes sense. Uh, on Apple and uh, Google, I love those two companies for a lot of different reasons. Um, Apple's product initiatives are not necessarily aligned with financial data, I don't think. Um, and I think Google is incredibly good at B2C, um, but they don't really understand the support mechanism. Awesome. One of the things that makes Bloomberg great is a gigantic sales force and sales ops and yep. uh, support component. And as you probably know, like if you have a glitch, if you have an error, if you're confused with how to find something, there's always somebody ready to take a ticket and help you. I think Amazon and Microsoft understand that a bit, um, certainly a bit more than a traditional B2C company. Um, but look, it's a, it's a big business. So Jeremy, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I think that if we had a, uh, an Amazon, Microsoft bidding war for Bloomberg, I think that would definitely be a, a huge catalyst for the market moving upwards. That would be just unbelievable. I think it's going to happen eventually. I think people are going to, you know, it's, I think it's inevitable that people are going to go for Bloomberg. Oh, for sure. Look, Mike, Mike owns, uh, I think he's the beneficial owner of 93%. He's got a pretty small board. Tom Secunda, the original CTO, owns around 5%, I believe. So you really have Mike saying, my kids don't want to run this. Who's going to run this next? No. And with my training in M&A, the other thing I would tell you is there's a lot of things that make sense on paper, but all that matters is how Mike feels about the acquirer. At yeah. the end of the day, he is the shareholder. So um, Satya at Microsoft, I think is probably somebody he probably likes very much. Bill Gates, philanthropist, you know, I, I think Microsoft makes a lot of sense on paper. Jeff Bezos, probably the first trillionaire is my guess. He's worth 170 billion on paper now. Certainly would be a great acquirer. Having said that, can you see Mike and Jeff um, in a room agreeing to anything? 
I'm no. not necessarily convinced. <laughs> so if you had to pin my interest on who would it be, you, you could say BlackRock, you could say um, a very large institution, Charles River, a, a group of private equity firms. Who is the best custodian for the business? It would be expensive I keep, for BlackRock. I'm not even sure. Could BlackRock afford Bloomberg at this point? I don't I mean, that would be, uh, I mean, I, I don't know BlackRock's financials. I don't think I've looked at that for yeah. a decade. So I'm probably 09. 09 was the last time I looked at their balance sheet, so I could be totally off. Well, my best guess, if you're looking at 10 billion revenue, 3 billion EBITDA, if you look at multiples and the scarcity and the monopoly of this business, you could easily conceive of three, four, five times revenue. This yeah. might be a $50 billion deal, something like that. Who could, who could digest that very easily? Maybe half cash, half stock, or although he probably just wants cash. Um, yeah. It's got to be one of the fangs. Um, but, you know, Facebook, uh, no way. Google, probably not. Apple, probably not. I keep coming around to Amazon and Microsoft are probably the best acquirers of that business. I know Facebook would have to want to do such a corporate pivot. It would, you know, you'd have, it would have, it would be such an interest. It would be, it wouldn't make sense. You would need someone who believed in like a new road for Facebook, uh, which, so that's why I don't think it would happen because, you know, it would have to be, the, the Zuck would have to decide that I want to enter this road and, you know. But. Well, you know, it's funny because you never, never say never, right? And I'm not saying Facebook is at the top of my list, but you've got a guy like Chamath or some of the, uh, the, the folks that have been in and around that space. What they might want to do is monetize Facebook's uh, sort of people level. Now, do I think that Facebook has the right people that eventually will become investors? Probably not. Um, Twitter, you know, Jack, uh, he, he is certainly interested in financial services. He oh, runs Square. Um, you know, Twitter is a little bit of a crazy one, but, you know, Bloomberg is just as much a media channel. And at some point when people don't want a huge thing on their desk, maybe that's 10, 20, 30 years from now, somebody like a Twitter would probably make more sense than Facebook, but yeah. probably not big enough and probably a little bit misaligned in interests, particularly as these platforms try to stay agnostic to uh, the red side, the blue side, and try to like conform to what everybody needs. Um, yeah, look, Amazon and Microsoft are there. So in terms of like what I did there that I enjoyed, it was meeting with entrepreneurs, frankly. I'm an entrepreneur, intrapreneur, whatever you want to call it. Um, I got to review hundreds of data sets uh, with my colleagues over there for several years and uh, meeting and seeing the enthusiasm of these CEOs and helping them sort of live their dream uh, to be on the Bloomberg platform was just terribly exciting. I mean, it's just awesome. If you're somebody that's coming up and you have a new use case and Bloomberg starts to adopt it, um, you know, it's great. You're getting out to the best distribution possible, the most powerful people in finance, investing, and so forth. Like your guest um, talk to my students, this was awesome. Uh, this was really great. Uh, you were really a fantastic guest, Jeremy. I couldn't be more thankful for the time you gave us today, by the way. You're, you know, very yeah. Good. Yeah. Hey, look, I love this stuff. I mean, that, that's what I do every day. I wake up in the morning and read the news and think about capital markets and think about tech. And when I talk to our clients, I get a charge out of that too. And, uh, you know, d data is an unmitigated disaster in many ways. It's so problematic, right? Like you and I look at data and there's first the operational layer, you know, is there history, good frequency, durability? Is the data quality there? Is it consistent? Is it digestible? Is it legal? Is it legally compliant? Can you even get it at a reasonable cost? How do you think about the ROI? The operational component is one, and then the alpha component is the other. You know, is it relevant to your process? Is it deep enough? Is there enough breath? Is it unique? Are you, are you the first one there? Is it scarce? The job of a great data hunter, particularly at a fund, is part one, to catalog what, what's around there in the world, what's available at any price, and then match that up to the interests of your PMs and your team. And then the second one is, what do you think you could dig out? You know, if you were the first person to get Uber data or the first person to get some unique data set, how is that going to work? It, could it work? 
Can you shape that data? And can you mingle that with your firm's processes? It, it, it's sort of like a, you know, it's not even a Jenga. It's sort of like this 3D puzzle. It's like playing aerial chess where you're trying to think ahead of where does my fund manager want to go next? And can I help them do that? Um, I, I think data is just like uh, something that can keep me occupied with my curiosities the rest of my life. Oh, no, this was great. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, and you have a great day, and uh, you know, we'll keep in touch. And thank you again for your guest talk to my students. Really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for everything, Alex.